we see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and yet there are higher lands over them. But there is a gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with the income. This, is also, this also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them, and what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sheep of the laborer. Whatever he eats, little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture, and he is the father of a son, but has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry in his hand. This also is a grievous e evil. Just as he came, so shall he go, and what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his day he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. You'll be seated. Normally at this time we pause and we, we pray and we're going to do this. I just want to ask you to do it a different way today. I'd love to give you an opportunity with your family and friends, those that are around you, to pray in two ways this morning. Maybe you want to, we often pray for our sister churches at this point, as, that they will receive the word, that the word will be clear. I'd love to give you an opportunity to pray with your family for maybe any of our sister churches in town, but maybe a home church, maybe one that you've come from, maybe a, another one that has been meaningful to you in your journey. And so I want to give you an opportunity to pray for them. And then second, would you pray for you and your family that the Lord would make your hearts fertile ground to receive his word as we come to it so take a moment group up where you are with family and friends pray for at least one other church with regard to receiving and living the word and then pray for us as we come and then i'll i'll close out this time by praying over us
Father, thank you for the privilege of prayer. We come only by the mediation of Christ and what he's achieved and what we've sung about through his work on the cross. We have no other means to approach you, but we are grateful that you've made this way possible and that we can cast our cares on you. You do care for us, that we are to bring our for requests and our supplications, as your word says, to you so that our hearts and minds may be guarded by your peace rather than anxious and worrisome. Father, we pray right now for our sister churches that you would uh, provide for them in every way that the word would go forth and be clear. I pray today for my home church in Leesville, Louisiana, Father, as they go through a search for a pastor, I pray that you would grant them a shepherd who loves you and loves your word and who would lead them well. And I pray in the meantime, Father, that it would be evident that you were the true lead pastor and that they would follow you. Thank you for uh, the opportunity to grow up in that congregation and using them in my life in so many ways. And I pray that even today as they gather that the word would be clear and, and effectual in their lives and that they would live what they learn. And Father, I pray the same for us as we continue our journey in Ecclesiastes and especially today as we think about money so many of us are tempted to pursue money and wealth. And thank you that Solomon in his wisdom is, is taking all the things that we often lift up and pursue and, and showing why they fail to ultimately satisfy or provide lasting gain. I pray that you would grant eyes to see that truth and ears to hear it and the grace to receive and walk in that. I'm sorry for the times that uh, we hoard uh, our resources because we doubt you. We doubt your provision I'm sorry for the times that we worry and are anxious over finances uh, because we, again, don't believe you. We don't trust your word that, that today birds will be fed and flowers will be clothed and, and we are your children. I'm sorry, Father, for the time that we use your resources to build our own kingdoms and we don't steward well what you entrust to us and, and what you grant is not used as much as possible for the advance of the gospel. So I pray that you would equip us one more time in the right handling of the resources that you entrust to us. And then God grant the grace to, to live this out. Help us now to, to be inclined to your word and to be receptive to it. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to start our studies of Ecclesiastes 5 and Matthew chapter 6. So if you'll take a moment, uh, we want to get a running start at Ecclesiastes, and I want to show you in the New Testament an exhortation and then an example, an exhortation and then an example, and then we'll come back to Ecclesiastes. If you are visiting with us, we've been walking through the book of Ecclesiastes, and we're actually going to cover the rest of chapter 5 and chapter 6 today, because the themes there are repeated, that, that ultimately money and wealth uh, given by themselves they don't satisfy. And then joy, to enjoy what we do have, is a gift given by God. It's not something that can be purchased. And so the themes in Ecclesiastes 6 are the same in Ecclesiastes 5. And so we'll consider both of these together. When I was a, a young man, uh, listen to me, right? I'm old now, my white beard. Uh, uh, one of my friends, Jeremy McMahon, pastors another church here in our area. And they were at the camp where I was at Lee University this past week. And he said... Man, it wasn't until you were on the big, big screens so I realized how white your beard is. I was like, man, Kenny Rogers fell on my face. So uh, 
We, uh, when I was going to pastor for the first time in Baton Rouge, meeting with that search team, one of the questions they asked me was, how often will you preach on money? And uh, I'd never actually considered it uh, because I'd never preached on money very much, having traveled a lot. And I, the most consistent uh, for a year and four months, I would fly up to Germantown Baptist from New Orleans and I would preach a Monday night service for them for 18 to mid 30 year olds. They didn't have any money, so we didn't have to cover it. And, uh, and then I would fly back to New Orleans on Tuesday mornings and go to class. And so my answer to them was as often as the text demands it as often as the text demands it. And that's been the practice of my pastoral ministry. I've never preached money because uh, I felt like there was a, an issue. It, it's as we've gone through exposition, we've gone through books, uh, the Lord brings the topic up and recalibrates our hearts to what matters most. And, and it's what's happening again here in Ecclesiastes. But I, I think then it's a good time for us to consider some broader statements that are, that are made, especially statements made by Jesus. And this is what he says in Matthew 6. He says in verse 19, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your creature, for where your treasure, for your creature, where your treasure is, and I may need glasses as I get old here, for where your treasure is, uh, there your heart will be also. Um, a God that can be destroyed by moth and rust and who can be stolen is not a great God. A great God is, is not one who can be impacted by these things. And one of the steady warnings of Jesus and the New Testament writers and even Old Testament is that we tend to make money a God. We tend to make wealth. We tend to make possessions and assets we tend to pursue these and we tend to worship them. We tend to, to want them sometimes even more than we want the Lord. And so uh, here Jesus says, don't do that. Don't lay up for your treasures here where there's nothing that's lasting. So the same message of Ecclesiastes is that these things aren't lasting. And Jesus is saying they're not lasting because if they're not destroyed by rust or moth, a thief will take them. And so they're, they're not long-term. Randy Alcorn has written an, uh, an incredible amount of material with regard to using our resources for the glory of God and advancement of his kingdom. He's written a ton about heaven. He's written a book called The Treasure Principle. And, and the reality, what we'll see in Ecclesiastes, is that we take none of it with us. But, Randy Alcorn would say, but we can send it ahead. We can send it ahead. And so any money that we use for the kingdom purposes, those, that's money that's stored in heaven. Those are treasures that are stored in heaven rather than just squandered. Those are the resources that are stewarded well for the advancement of the gospel. And so Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. We saw last summer in our studies of the minor prophets that we ought to be very careful about robbing God of what belongs to his, pretending that what we have is ours. And so often growing up in congregations, we were told, give 10%, give 10%, and then we acted as if the rest was ours. The reality is it's all his, and it's a stewardship of this. 
Well, as soon as he says, don't store up treasures for yourselves here, he knows he has to provide another word. And in verse 25, he says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and and body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor drive through and get cash from an ATM machine. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin nor shop at Walmart nor Sam's or Belk or Reed's. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown out into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? You see, that's the key. That's the key. Our problem is we don't really trust God. We don't believe God. The way we steward resources is evidence of whether we believe God or we don't. Whether we feel like we have to provide for ourselves. You're going to see in Ecclesiastes that hoarding can be hurting, right? And hurting ourselves. And and the key to it is we don't believe God really cares for us, as he says. And he says, the birds are going to eat today and the flowers are going to be clothed. Don't you think you're a little more important than, don't tell PETA or any of the nature lovers, but you're a little more important than the blue bonnets in Texas and the wildflowers on the interstate that God cares for you. And then he goes on to say, verse 31, therefore, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. I love that he doesn't say, seek first resources. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And everything else you'll need, you'll, you will find. And so often, we could tell you story after story, especially missionaries are among some of the, the foremost who could tell you about God's provision. Key times when they needed his provision in one resource or another. I've told you even before, Helen Rosevere, they needed a um, hot water bottle for, for a baby that had, had, had been born in the uh, center that she was running there for, for mothers. And in the crate that came from England that had been sent months ahead, there was a water bottle that they needed for that moment that God in his provision. George Mueller and his work at the orphanage didn't make any of his needs public. He just prayed took them to the Lord and the Lord would meet need after need after need after need and so it comes down to a fundamental issue are we going to believe Jesus or not are we going to trust Jesus or not are we going to see that everything that he entrusts to us is not so that we can store treasure here and build our kingdom but for the advancement of his kingdom and that we would really and truly order our lives for the sake of the gospel and as we pray each week ordering ordering even our finances. So turn to 2 Corinthians 8. I've shown you the exhortation. Now let me show you the example. Turn to 2 Corinthians 8 and the Macedonian churches. In 2 Corinthians 8, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes and he says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that's been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Every time I read that verse, I'm always 
You see these things that are at opposites, right? Severe test of affliction, abundance of joy, right? That they have extreme poverty, and yet they overflow in a wealth of generosity. Well, what's the key to that? The key to it's in verse 1, the grace of God that's been manifest among them. It is the grace of God that even through persecution, they have an abundance of joy, that even in extreme poverty, they're able to overflow in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. Paul is collecting for the churches in Jerusalem and here the churches that are further out are giving back to the mother church in a sense and and here in Macedonia where they have nothing it says Paul even counseled them I don't know that you guys should participate in this I don't know that you should you should get why don't we let Thessalonica do this why don't we let some other place and they're like don't you rob us of an opportunity to give and they begged and of their own free will to be able to be part of it. And the key was, first of all, they gave themselves to the Lord to say, we're all yours. We're all yours. Everything we have is all yours. And then accordingly, he says, they gave by the will of God to us. And he gives the credit where the credit is. That is only the grace of God at work. Because if you're in severe affliction and extreme poverty, you're probably not thinking very much, if left to our natural means, of helping anybody else you're thinking of survival more than you're thinking of stewardship. You're thinking of your own family more than you're thinking about being a blessing. You've got your own burdens and you're, you're definitely not thinking about being a blessing. It was an evidence of the grace of God at work in their lives to say, even in the midst of such difficulty, we want to give, we want to be a part of this. And they gave. He will go on in 2 Corinthians 9 in, in a text that's read often in the context of giving, beginning in verse 6. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You know why? Because God is a cheerful giver. God did not give Christ reluctantly to us. God did not give Christ just under compulsion that he was obligated to give Christ. He was not obligated to give Christ. He chose to give Christ. And he is a cheerful giver. Jude says that uh, as is he writes that he will present us before his glory with great joy that he he saves us with great joy he is the most cheerful giver and god is able to make all grace abound to you there's the key again remember in, in chapter 8 verse 1 it was the grace of god that was at work if we're ever going to order our lives and finances for the sake of the gospel it will only be because of his grace at work in our lives and he says that he's able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency now that's a key word right because sufficiency may not cover all my want disease, right? Sufficiency versus all my, my wants here, but having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it's written, he's distributed freely. He's given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplied seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed, watch this, for sowing. He doesn't just increase your seed for you to advance your own kingdom. He does it for the purposes of sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in every way for all your generosity, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. That's the point. 
for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it's also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ. And what he's saying is they're going to affirm you only did this because Christ is at work in you. This flows out of your confession and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift, which or is more appropriately, who is Christ? Who is Christ? Let's go back to Ecclesiastes now. Uh, an exhortation then from Matthew 6 from Jesus. Hey, don't store up treasures here where moth and rust or thieves can do away with them. And trust that your father loves you more than he loves birds. He loves you more than he loves flowers. And then an example to be challenged by. I feel in many ways, in particular, our denomination among many others, one of the reasons that the pace of the gospel advancing to some of the most difficult places is because we've squandered so many resources on ourselves. We've squandered many resources on facilities and programs and, and our own agendas, to be honest. Our own agendas. And so, uh, several years ago, our own denomination could not send missionaries who'd been theologically trained and willing to go because we didn't have the finances. And I, I think it's because, it's not because we lacked them being entrusted to us. It's just what we had done with them while they were entrusted to us. And so, an exhortation from Jesus, an example from those Macedonian churches and the grace of God at work. And now we come back to Ecclesiastes that's going to remind us that money and wealth, they're both meaningless without Jesus. In Ecclesiastes 5a through 6.12, I put the passage in the sentence for you. Neither rest nor joy can be purchased, but are provided by our sovereign and good God as gifts to his children. And we're meant to rejoice in God and his gifts. Um, seeking meaning and satisfaction, however, in money is foolishness. Wisdom is founding and trusting God, both in what he gives and what he withholds. Both in what he gives and what he withholds. That he knows what he's doing as he entrusts us with little or he entrusts us with much. And as the text begins, we pick up in verse 8. It says, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness... Do not be amazed at the matter, for the high officials watch by higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. And truth number one from our text today is, though we may not be surprised by injustice, we should always be grieved by it and stand against it. So we're being called here, don't be surprised by it, and that may be true, don't be surprised, but we should still be grieved when we see injustice or corruption in any form. It's already been talked about in a previous text, uh, as we've studied about injustice and, and what uh, happens in our world, Matthew covered that in his sermon uh, several weeks ago. In the particular context here, everything's going to be about money and wealth. So I think the particular injustice here, especially as it talks about one that's over another and then those that are over him, is corruption that's in, in a system, whether it's government or whether it's, where it's a job. As long as we are on earth, we're going to see people buying their way to power, using their public position for personal gain, and manipulating the system for their own advantage. I mean, there was, there was something this week about uh, 
the prime minister's wife in Israel that she was using funds to purchase meals outside the home or so, you know and uh, and and that how many politicians do we see using those funds for their own reasons and how many pastors do we see using funds that were meant for the good, for corrupted purposes that they take these and and so he says look we live in a fallen world don't be surprised by this but i think in our context again money and wealth obtained through honest means don't satisfy how much more so than money and wealth obtained through dishonest means, especially oppressing the poor, oppressing the, the lowest level of the employee or the person working for you so that you can gain in some way financially in this way. And it happens in in business world. Some of you may be witnesses of this even where you work now. I think in our fallen world, it's justice that's actually more surprising when we see justice. And that's sad that it would be the exception or the asterisk that it would be there. And while we may not be surprised by injustice, we are sometimes surprised by who's carrying it out. The one who we trusted or the one... I always find it interesting when someone who claims to love Jesus teaches a Sunday school class and goes on mission trips, then uses their power at their job to take advantage of those they supervise. We should be surprised and expect more for them, and we should also not be silent. When you, when you see the guy... Uh, with the Jesus fish on his car doing corrupt things, especially uh, to gain financially at work above others, you should say something. You should be grieved and you should intercede. And then Solomon's point is that a corrupt boss is not always a lone wolf. Uh, that Sometimes they're upon themselves in a corrupt system of leadership. They're just getting their cut because they know the guys above them are going to take their cut and this sort of thing. And that's not how we who reflect Christ do business. That's not how we operate. We don't seek to oppress those entrusted to our care. We want to seek to serve them. Uh, Jesus told his disciples that those who follow him should, should never lord their authority over those, those lead, over those they lead, but especially not to the disadvantage of those entrusted to their care. Our hope, though, as we look at this corrupted system, so one official, higher, higher, higher. And in our government, you're supposed to have checks and balances. I think we got a lot of checks and imbalances, to be honest with you. Uh, obviously, even our debt keeps rising in our own country. This is why the reminder is our hope isn't in government. Our hope is in the gospel. The gospel alone changes corrupted, greedy hearts. God alone changes organizations and systems and he does so by the gospel and as one good president once said in this present crisis government is not the solution to our problem anyone know what he said government is the problem all right so uh, the solution is not found in more um, laws coming from congress it's coming from more congressmen and women being changed by the gospel and being gracious. In verse 9 where he says, this is gain for a land in every way. A king committed to cultivated fields. Admittedly, this is really a difficult uh, verse to translate in the Hebrew. But the idea here possibly is when you do have a king who's not just corrupt and, and using everybody for his own gains, we've certainly seen that. But when you have the cultivated fields, then you have people who are working. And in Israel, when they would have those cultivated fields, it also meant the widows and those who sojourned with them would be taken care of and provided as they would have those fields. And so a picture there that if you have a king who's not corrupt but who's, who's cultivating, this is a gift for everyone. This is a gift. And it's why we should be reminded we should pray for our boss. 
We should pray for the CEOs. We should pray for our mayor. We prayed for our mayor in our elder meeting, elder prayer time right before this service. We should pray for our president. We should pray for those who uh, are in these positions that they would not be corrupted because it's so easy to do. It's so easy to have our own agendas, our own goals, our own kingdoms, and to take advantage of others. If you see that happening at your workplace, you should say something. You should confront and trust the Lord to give you every grace you need to do so. Truth number two, then, is salaries of smoke. That's what another pastor calls uh, this whole section. But salaries of smoke will never satisfy. Public officials and bosses aren't the only ones who are tempted uh, to mishandle money. All of us are. And so verse 10 begins and says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. So he comes back. He's, he, as he's been doing, he's shown us pleasure. He's shown us work. He's shown us all these things that we make gods with little g's. And now he's coming and he's turning his full bear on money and wealth to say, here's why this isn't going to satisfy as well. As all the other things we've covered, now let's examine money. And so I've put in your notes there, we must be careful not to seek satisfaction where it cannot be found. Now we know this, but the problem is we walk out these doors and we still do it. We foolishly, we, we have like the memory of Dory in, in the movie Finding Nemo, you know. And we have Christian deja vu. We've forgotten these things before, right? And so we, we can't seem to remember. The bottom line that Solomon is saying here, the preacher is saying, is we can never get enough. We somehow can become quickly dissatisfied dissatisfied once we obtained that for which we deeply longed. You ever been there? There was something you really wanted, and then you guide it. You still really want it? You know? If it's a spouse, I hope so, right? But if it's children, I, I hope so, right? If it's the pet, I'm with you there this morning. I could give or take my dog, you know? I'm trying to get here. Buru decides he's going to play the fox and the hound in our backyard and chase the fox three yards over into the woods because that's what he wants to do and bless our neighbors in many ways let me come after him anyway so i can take or, or leave it when it comes to dogs but i've had so many things that you want it you want it so bad and then when you get it you get beyond it that's why he's saying here he, he never is there's never going to be enough to be truly happy we we think we need more and yet at one time we thought we'd be content with the very things we have now well if i just get that spouse i'll be content if I just get those children, I'll be content. If I just get a good job, if I can just this or that, I'll be content. And the problem is we, we reach those and, and we're not happy. Uh, and the problem is not what we have or do not have. The problem is our heart. That's why John D. Rockefeller would always say his favorite million was the next one that he was going to make because our hearts are deceitful and they're not satisfied. And, and I'm fearful that some of you are thinking, yeah, but I'm different, Pastor. I'd be there. If, if God just gives me this next thing I want, man, I will be satisfied forever. Stop lying. Be real in this place because the Lord already knows who's lying. Just ask Ananias and Sapphira when it comes to handling resources of the Lord's. He knows who tells the truth and who doesn't. We, we, we're not. We would not be the exception. So the only cure for money cravings is contentment. That's the only cure. And that comes from the Lord. None of us are naturally contented, which is why it's a grace from God. Ecclesiastes warns us that our divided hearts that live for things that, that only money can buy, it's vanity. 
It's vanity. And we're being told, don't put your hope here. Well, why not? Why shouldn't we? And he's going to give you some reasons. So he says in verse 10, here's his theory. Money and wealth do not satisfy. Doesn't matter if you keep getting more and more and more. They're not going to satisfy, right? Uh, I, uh, I read this week of a guy who said, man, I'm tired of people thinking if you make $200,000, you got a lot of money. It's not a lot of money. How many of you still think $200,000 is a lot of money? Yeah. That bro doesn't anymore. He doesn't think it is, right? Man, I, I'd love that problem. Right, I know what you're saying, right? So this is, the, this is the evidence. We think, oh, I'd be different. No, you wouldn't. You would be him wanting 400000 right? And so there's this picture here. So why doesn't it satisfy? He gives you a couple reasons. Here's reason number one. As, many, as money increases, so do people and problems. What blessings. Verse 11 says, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? I love this picture here. The increasing of funds often brings the increasing of friends. You know what I'm saying? And so the more we have, the more other people try to get it. I was blessed to have a letter from the IRS in my mail when I got home from camp this weekend. Still trying to clear up because they think that I owe them, which I do not owe them. The error is they added an extra zero, which I would not have minded. But I didn't get that extra zero. And they're trying to take it. And I'm like, I don't have it because I didn't get it. Thank you, IRS. But they're like, we think you got it and we want ours, right? And I'm like, yes, see right here. And the more you have, the more they, they, they show up, right? And creditors, solicitors, friends, say, bruh, you got $5 I could borrow, right? And people just show up. I read this week about, some of you remember Bernie Kosar, who played football. You remember this guy? Played in the NFL, had certain businesses, and he filed for bankruptcy. What I laughed at is at one time, he said he was paying for 60 cell phone plans. He said, I only have one. But somehow I was playing, paying for 60 cell phone plans. And, uh, and then there were, he was loaning money to other players to help them get out of debt. And then he was gone. It's just what this text says, uh, that when, when goods increase, so do those who show up at the table to be like, yeah, man, let's celebrate. This is good stuff. Let, let me sit at your table, right? If they succeed in getting it, then... We are never able to enjoy it ourselves. And what he says is, you may see it, but it's gone. He says, the owner, what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? He, all he sees are those who are taking whatever would have been the gain or the advantage. So, as money increases, so do people and problems. So that's one reason it doesn't satisfy. Number two, increased prosperity does not equal an increase in peace. Maybe you've found this to be true. But he goes on to say in verse 12, Sweet is the sleep of a laborer. I don't know what his sleep number bed is, but sweet is it, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Like babies, an intro to Greek in seminary, money may keep us awake at night, right? May keep us awake. The owner or the manager may have more concerns than just the hourly employee, such as profit or loss or compliance, complaints or conflict, the next business deal or worry that could all go wrong. Those who live by the mantra, you can sleep when you're dead, may find that they have that opportunity sooner than they anticipated because they're, they're not resting, they're worrying. But there's also another angle here. How many of you have ever just worked really hard and been exhausted and slept well that night? That's, that's, that's the picture here that the one who, whether they had a lot for dinner or not, they slept well because they were able to work hard. But the one that's affluent doesn't have to work as hard because maybe now someone else cuts their grass or maybe now someone else cleans their house or maybe now someone else feeds their dogs. 
Yes, youth, if you're looking for an internship at the Dowden House, there's one that we could arrange, right? That someone else is doing the work. And so the picture here is actually someone who is sleepless, not from overwork, but from overeating. My man's got insomnia from indigestion, from just chilling, right? And, and so good thing insomnia cookies is open in Oxford. He can make a trip over and get those. But here he is, and his sleep is deprived of him. And I love what Kidner says. He looks at all our modern exercise machines and health clubs. And by the way, Planet Fitness really is a, a judgment-free zone. I, I got that thinking. Because if you don't show up for a long time, they don't judge you, right? I hadn't heard from them folks in months. So <laughs> anyways, they love it. Judgment-free. They just take your cash. So he, he talked about modern exercise machines and health clubs. And he says, it is one of our human absurdities to pour out money and effort just to undo the damage of money and ease. We have to have gyms and fitness because our jobs no longer require all of our, not all of our jobs require physical labor that we put in that work or physical labor to get the food that we're going to eat for our family. And so we have to have these modern inventions because of the, the influence that has occurred in our lives. So increased prosperity does not equal an increase in peace. Either one, if you're, you're not working, you're, you're sitting back and, and enjoying innocence, but, but uh, also if you're up because you are worrying, you may lose it all the next day, which uh, gets us to our next truth. There is no lasting security in money. Look at verse 13. There's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. Many people don't think about that when they think about hoarding. They think it will be helpful, but Solomon says they were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he's father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. Uh, the more you have, the more you can hurt yourself by holding on to it. I thought it was interesting. I read this week of an article written by a non-Christian called What Wealth Does to Your Soul. Interesting for a non-Christian to write this, but the author argued that making lots of money makes you selfish, unhappy, and dishonest. And then he cited some studies in the article that revealed richer people are more likely to cut off other drivers, not give pedestrians the right of way. I don't know how all of this ended up just in vehicles, right? But if you see wealthy people driving cars, just stay on the sidewalk for a while, apparently. But so they cut off other drivers, not give pedestrians. And then I love this one. They take candy from children. <laughs> Who does that? Right? Give me that lifesaver, kid. You know? What an interesting study, right? But he says that these resources do this to us. The bottom line is financial ruin can happen to anyone, anywhere, at any time. We live in a day that they did not, they did not have motorcycle insurance, boat insurance, ATV insurance, house insurance. They lived in a time where just one thing could, could wipe them out. But it's no different from us. There could be one thing that occurs in our life. And whatever we think is our financial house of security will be shown lacking for what it is. God often permits the very riches in which people trust to bring about the ruin of those who own them. To let them have their rights. So do you think these can protect you? It's sort of what he did for uh, Israel in Ezekiel 16 when he says, Oh, you think Egypt will protect you? Okay, let's see how that works out for you. Because they've always had your best interest at heart, guys right so he says you think money will protect you let me show you how money will not do that uh, I remember when I first had an opportunity to talk to a financial advisor in our hometown he would always use this same saying that well we don't have a crystal ball 
It tells us exactly how things will turn out. And I always thought, this is his way of saying, you can invest with my company, but we're letting you know you may gain nothing and may lose everything with us, but we're still going to charge you commission, right? And so he would always say, we don't have a crystal ball. I was like, I didn't come here for a seance, you know? And so that he, he, you can't predict. There's, there's, there's no ultimate security in, in the market, as people have seen. It was interesting reading this week of the number of CEOs of large corporations that had taken their own lives all because of money things. All because of money things. Uh, fathers and mothers, we do have a, a duty to try to save and sacrifice for our sons and daughters. But the interesting thing is it's all, it's all a vanity. It's a, it's a chasing after the wind in some ways. And for this guy that lost everything, it was like double worry. So we're, we were often told, how many of you have ever worried about something that didn't happen, right? And so you, we worried about, not Tara. Tara's shaking her head. She doesn't worry about anything. She's chill, right? I do it for both of us. I take her share of it and add it on. And so, you know, you often hear of you worry for today of things that don't even happen tomorrow. It's not here. This guy actually worried over the acquiring of the wealth and then the loss of it all. It was double uh, double ruin in his journey and and what Solomon is trying to say is there's no lasting security in wealth it doesn't matter what your 401k says it can all be gone tomorrow truth number four just as we brought no wealth or money into the world with us we will leave all of it when we die he says in verse 15 as he came from his mother's womb he shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand this also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Uh, the picture here, uh, obviously, I, I, I don't want us to miss this because Job says something very similar. Naked I came, naked I will go. Now Solomon is saying twice in the wisdom literature, they're trying to get us to see how we arrived is how we will depart. Paul will pick up this verse in 1 Timothy 6. He's going to say, we brought nothing in the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. As far as I know, I was going to ask Justin Brewer, since he's the maternal fetal medicine, but I don't think he, as he's scanned and done the ultrasounds, he's ever seen money bags in the wombs. He's never seen a baby with its own wallet be like, I got this, doc, you know, come out, be like, y'all take debit, you know, no, no, that. There's no baby who comes out. There's no baby who comes out. This is my college tuition. The Lord just sent it with me. No, it doesn't happen. And so when we die, left behind will be more than a series. It will be true of all of our labor, right? Steve Jobs, the co-founder of Apple, when he died, he left behind $10.2 billion, which that's, you know, it's a little bit, right? How many pennies of the $10.2 billion do you think Steve Jobs took with him? Not a single penny of $10.2 billion. Luther exhorts us, as I shall forsake my riches when I die, so I forsake them while I'm living. And uh, Philip Ryken says, we are headed for eternity, therefore we should travel light. Uh, Solomon here is reminding us, we brought nothing in the world, and you will take none of it when you die. It is all temporary stewardship. Temporary stewardship uh, number five the pursuit of money has, has the potential for many side effects i love i love uh when i when i had twitter on my phone i've taken it off just for the ease of not being distracted or 
frustrated with all the mess that's on there. But I love, there's, there's a guy who is a Mississippi State fan who, his name's Crystal Method, that's his handle. And it's not Crystal Meth, just clarifying, but Crystal Method, and after Jack Crystal, and uh, he says on there that being a state fan, that there are like few moments of joy, and then heartburn and heartache, and I, I didn't even want to come in the kitchen and watch the bottom of the ninth last night, or whenever it was, because it's what state does to me. Every time I try to cheer for them, they rip your heart out. They just rip your heart out. You're like, you're so close, oh, you know, and, and so there are side effects for being state fans and LSU fans. And there are many side effects for the pursuit of money. We'll see in 1 Timothy 6. We'll, we'll be there. there. There are warnings. But, but look at what it says in verse 17. Moreover, so he's kind of summarizing. So he says, if, if you've been reading to this point and you're not convinced yet, let me just say this to you. All his days he eats in darkness in much vexation and sickness and anger. Just like they told you it would be a business school, Right? That you pursue this, and one day you'll have the privilege of eating in a dark room all by yourself, mad and bitter about it, and sick of health. Yay! How's that soup, right? So, eating in darkness, much vexation, sickness, anger, the ungodly pursuit of wealth can take its toll, leaving one with many worries and poor health and a lot of anger and bitterness. And if there's anything worse, Kidner says, than the addiction money brings, it's the emptiness it leaves. And so the pursuit of money is it's just not only meaningless, it's also miserable. Uh, Solomon will write in Proverbs to say, Better is little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. Better is little when you enjoy what you have with the family you have than having a bunch of stuff with no one with whom to enjoy it. If we exercise more care for growth and wealth than growth in the word, we should not be surprised at its cost and the lack of those who will care for us at the end. We've shown who our true friends are, who our true allies are. And this guy's eating in the dark all by himself. And what he has, he will not even be able to take with him. Which gets us then to one other truth. Joy cannot be purchased. Look at chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. There's an evil that I've seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It's a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he, has also, he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity, goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it's not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place? All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wondering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. So he's saying here that they're, they're, they can't be satisfied. And then that there's no joy that can be purchased and there's no rest. He says a stillborn baby has something that this man who lives and has tons of kids and lives long years and has all kinds of wealth, he still does not have rest because he can't purchase it because joy and rest are not things that can be purchased uh, from the world and then he says in the middle of it he, wa- he wears himself out acquiring all these assets that he never enjoyed but a stranger will get to enjoy them 
And it's no wonder that Solomon says, this is futility. This is vanity. This is a waste of your time. The inability to receive joy is not always punishment, though. That's what I want you to see. But a pointer that true satisfaction is is found somewhere else besides where we were seeking it. Which gets us then to his main point. Go back to 18 through 20 in chapter 5. Rejoice in God and his good gifts. That's the third big truth of this text. Rejoice in God and his good gifts. Behold, what I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Here's his God-centered view. He moves to this God-centered view now of resources and joy and assets and possessions. Without God, life is meaningless and miserable, especially if we're living for money. But both the having of things and the enjoying things are gifts from God. He is the key word in this text, that God is what enables us. Isn't that incredible that you can have all this stuff and not enjoy them because God hasn't granted you that gift, that ability. His gifts listed in this passage, life, wealth, possessions, the power to enjoy them. I put the quote from Reich in there for you. The world that God created is full of many rich gifts, but the power to enjoy them does not lie in the gifts themselves. This is why it's always useless to worship the gifts instead of the giver. Contentment, rejoicing in toll. Danny Aiken says, God chose the life, family, job, skills, looks, and intellect you have. He's determined all of these gifts for you. But the misery from money is meant to point us to the Savior who satisfies. That There's not an answer there in those things. There is an answer in God and Christ and his satisfaction and there is lasting security and the incredible picture is verse 20 for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart I just call this joy filled and gratitude fueled days and let me just ask how many of those are yours how many of your days are just joy filled and gratitude fueled you're grateful for the gift God has given you that day I've had a lot of opportunity the last couple of weeks with these, these camps to spend time with the kids. And, you know, traveling with children in a car can be a mixed bag, can't it? And there are wonderful moments of joy, like 30 seconds, and then there are four and a half hours of pain. But uh, I was just thinking, you know, what we all know that they don't realize, those of us who've grown up in families and now maybe our parents are dead, our siblings have moved or, or in other places or not the same relationship you know I'm blessed to have we are blessed that often on Sundays we go out to lunch and it's 10 of us it's a circus when we do you know but but there there are 10 of us to have Tara's parents and my mom and sister here and there's no doubt a blessing but even how I relate to my mom and sister is different because now I have my own wife and children and so the moment of that family it's just a moment isn't it and so I was driving realizing we have after this summer we have four summers and Arabella will be going to college hopefully and so it's it's fading it's it's vanishing it's so fleeting and so yesterday I I was sitting in our kitchen and I was reading over this and Arabella was literally chasing Alistair and then Buru our dog got involved in it and he's yelling and it's this whole adventure in the house and just for that moment God granted the grace to say this is what's what life is about 
The enjoyment of these moments. It's a grace of God to not want to get through them, but to enjoy the journey. To, for all the bickering in the car ride, there will become a day when it's silent. And you can listen to whatever you want on the radio then. But the opportunities to have those conversations with your children on those car rides will be gone. It'll be gone. It'll be fleeting. And so he says, when God grants you the grace to enjoy who you have and what you have, you should thank him. You should be grateful. And he says, the joy that comes from that is far better than the pursuit of what you're not going to find in these other things. And he says, your days pass because you're so full of joy in the goodness of God to you. And that's what we want to be grateful for. So many of us have so much to thank God for his goodness toward us, our families, our finances. And I know that sometimes we struggle. In, in America, we're, we're, we have different means of wealth, but compared to everyone else in the world, I think I have, I think I have like $17 in my, my wallet because I never have cash, first of all. But those $17 are more than literally millions of people have today globally, right? And God has entrusted this, not for our satisfaction. Our satisfaction is found only in him, but our stewardship. And that we would be, with his resources, reliable. And if we are, it will only be because of his grace. I want you to, let's close in 1 Timothy 6. I want to go back one more time. 1 Timothy 6. First Timothy 6, there are two sections I want to read to us, beginning in verse 6 of chapter 6. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. There he is. He's quoting from both Job and Ecclesiastes. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. How many families are we going to have to see ruined by the pursuit of money before we learn yours will be no different? Yours will not be helped. You think, if I just do this, it'll, it'll help my family more. And we're being warned here. It says in verse 10, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And then in verse 17, we go on to verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, that's all of us. You may, you may owe more than you have right now, but worldly standards, this is us. This is us. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. As Mitch comes, I want to tell you a story, Tolstoy uh, penned a story called How Much Land Does a Man Need? And in that story, it's about a content peasant farmer who said that he needs just a little land and he'll be happy. 
The devil overhears the man and commits to getting him more land in an effort to destroy him. Oh, you think you're content? Okay, well, let's see if you are or not. So he commits to get him more land. The peasant farmer gets a little land. That's what he said he needed, right? And he would be content. So he gets a little land, but he's not satisfied. So he trades it for more land. But guess what? It's not enough. He's not satisfied. So this goes on repeatedly. It's this cycle. So the balance of his life, he's just trading. Want more and more land, more and more land. And eventually he dies in a quest for this huge chunk of land. And the story ends with the servant saying this. Six feet from his head to his heels was all he needed. That's all the land he needed. The story is how much land does a man need? This guy thought if he could have more, he'd be good. And the lesson there is the lesson that the one in Ecclesiastes says, you're not going to find satisfaction in the acquisition of more. You find satisfaction in the approval that comes from the Messiah. And in having him. I was thinking about O Zacchaeus today. That there was a clear transformation in the treasure of his heart. Once Jesus had come into that life with Zacchaeus, he literally gave half of what he had away to the poor, and then he repaid four times what anyone what he had stolen from anyone. It was a marked transition in his treasure. His treasure had been money, but when he met the real treasure, he could let all the lesser treasure go. He could let all the lesser treasure go. And so in our one life, we want to be good stewards. If you're like me and have squandered resources on your own kingdoms, let me give you a word of good hope. What we confess today, Christ has covered. Christ has paid for on the cross. But we should be those who confess if we have squandered and if we are squandering. Today would be a good day to really pray, not just when we come to our offering time, but even in response here, help me order my life and finances for your sake and not just mine. If you're not content, if you like that, would you pray for God to grant that grace? If you're not enjoying whom you have and what you have, those are gifts from God. Would you ask God for the grace to enjoy? Because it's so fleeting. And then they're gone. This is a moment here. It's a moment. We need grace. If you're hoarding because you think God loves birds and flowers more than you, and you don't believe God, would you pray this morning for the grace to trust Him more? Pray for the grace to believe that He loves you. He knows what you need before you ask it. And you don't have to seek the bonus at work. No, seek Him. Seek Him and His righteousness, and you will have the resources that you need. And in our world, and in especially our country, those we disciple desperately need to see some people who know how to steward resources well for the glory of God. If the gospel is going to go to the furthest places, it will be the sacrifice of the church. And those things will resound into eternity. I pray we will be those that steward his resources well. Father, thank you for your word. Every once in a while, we need to have our hearts recalibrated to money and wealth and how hope isn't found in them because it's not just managers and CEOs that can be corrupt. We can be corrupt. We can be foolish. And 
think if we have just a little bit more, we'll, we'll be happy. But God, I pray you would show us this text that enjoying of whom we have and what we have, those are gifts from you. And when you withhold that enjoyment, it's because you're wanting to point to where true joy is found. So even your withholding is for our good. Because we lift up things so much and make idols so quickly and constantly, daily. So thank you for the book of Ecclesiastes. It's taking our idols one by one and then knocking them over and exposing them for what they are. Gods that can be destroyed by rust and moth or stolen by thieves are no gods at all. They certainly cannot save. They can do nothing to overcome and forgive our sin. I pray, Father, that you would help us to believe you, that you do love us. And we see that most in the cross. You cheerfully gave Christ for us. How will you not also provide food that we need each day? Clothing. I pray that we would really heed the verses that we know, be anxious for nothing. Especially when it comes to resources and finances, money and wealth. Father, help us not to be consumed with getting more so that we miss all that we have. I don't want to be sitting in a room in the dark, vexed, sick, angry, because I pursued a treasure that was no treasure at all and lost the real treasures. I pray that you would grant the grace we need, whether we're hoarding whether we're selfishly stewarding these resources, whether we're not believing, and even if we just need to confess and be honest, that we would repent and believe afresh today. You love us, you're for us. You will provide all we need. I'm sorry that we try to build our little bitty kingdoms. I'm sorry that our comfort is often more a priority than the advancement of your gospel. Please, God, work in our hearts and our minds so it'll make its way to our hands and our wallets. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing this truth today.